You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So we're going to talk about love, the first fruit of the Spirit. Um, And it is more of a topical series. It's not going to be verse by verse, although... I will have a teaching, a main teaching passage, because we cannot get away from verse by verse. So even though it is a topical, I I do have a main teaching passage that I do want to, I do want us to journey through, and that's in Luke chapter 6. So Luke chapter 6, if you have your Bible with you, please open them up to Luke chapter 6, verses 31 to 36. Luke chapter 6, 31 to 36. And this is what the Word of God says. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Should I say that again? I'll say that again, just so it just sinks in. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough passage. This is an extreme (laughs) command that we would love even our enemies. And Father, we know that this is not possible outside of yourself. You are the only being on this, in this universe that can love with such a love. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would you would grow us in loving in the same way, that you would bear this fruit of love in our hearts. And Lord God, may we focus on you and look to you and fellowship with you. And as we do that, would you please grow fruit in our hearts for the glory of your name. I pray that there will be no distractions in our hearts and our minds this morning and that you, Holy Spirit, would do what only you can do. Change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to be spending the next nine weeks in this series called The Fruit of the Spirit, The Fruit of the Spirit. If you remember last week at the park, um, because I'm sort of connecting uh, the beginning of this um, sermon with the very last week at the park, or the sermon uh, from the very last week at the park, we talked about that when we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and, and indwells us. You guys remember vaguely at least that sermon? Anyways, we'll we'll do a a recap here. He takes residence in our life to do life with us. And and we talked about how one of the things that the Holy Spirit brings about in our life is freedom from the power of sin. That's one of the things that he does, which is absolutely amazing. Freedom from the power of sin. The sin of lying, for instance, doesn't have to control us anymore. In Christ, the power of sin is broken, is dead. And now, the really cool part is that this new series on the fruit of the Spirit is actually focused on freedom for the kind of person God wants us to become. 
the kind of person that God has designed for all of us to live. So the Holy Spirit frees us from the power of sin through the power of the gospel, more specifically through the power of the resurrection. But then he wants to bring us into freedom for the kind of person God wants us to become. Now, now here's the reality, and here's the reason why so many times after we've been saved, so many of us, so many Christians go back to those old habits, sexual immorality, lying on a regular basis, addiction to so many things, and on and on and on goes the list. The reason is that we haven't replaced these old habits with the new things that God wants to grow in our new life. Does that make sense? And that's the premise of our series. Galatians chapter two, verse 18, and I love what Apostle Paul says here. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, and what he tore down was the old habits, so he's saying if I start rebuilding all of that back up, he says, I prove myself to be a transgressor. A lot of us do that. And Apostle Paul is using this metaphor of rebuilding, of demolition. Now, not sure if you, you were ever you know, part of a, of a remodeling project. I've done it a few times myself, um, and it's awesome. It's satisfying to see the complete project uh, you know, at the end of the project may not be that satisfying as you go through it. But imagine that you're almost done with the remodeling of your home, and it's starting to look really good. But then right at the end, and, and, and this is after you've invested so much time, so much sweat, so much money, so much energy, you've changed all the floors, you've changed all the paint, all the cabinets, new trim work all around. So imagine that you're just about done and you have to literally just install the last tile on your fireplace, which is nothing, right? A little tile. And you're like, I don't think I'm going to finish. I don't think we have enough money for all of that. So let's bring all the old stuff back. Imagine that. Let's, let's bring back the asbestos tiles. <laughs> let's bring back the broken old cabinets. Let's bring, bring back the old stinking, absolutely disgusting carpet. Why would a normal person do something like that? Well, they wouldn't. They shouldn't. And that's the point that Paul is making in this verse. It makes even less sense for the things that God has given us freedom from in our lives to run back to those old habits. It makes no sense. It's insanity. When we've tasted the sweetness of freedom in Christ, why do we run back to those old habits that die so hard? Why would you run to slavery when Jesus has purchased freedom for you? Why would you do that? Why would I do that? And I think the key, ready for this? The key is that we haven't grown fruit. We haven't grown fruit. We haven't replaced the old life with something new, which, with, which is the new life in Christ, the new life that God has designed for all of us to live. And in the same way that the gospel is about demolition, because it is, it's a demolition project, removing the garbage and all the old stuff from our life, bringing us from death to life, right? If we haven't started to actually live into this new life God has in store for us, then inevitably the old life is going to creep back in. That's the premise of our series. Let me share with you where I get this from. 
It is again Apostle Paul who actually points us to this reality, and he makes this point in Galatians 5. Surprise, surprise. This is where we, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But let me read to you from a few verses earlier so you can hear him make this exact point. Read with me, please. Let's start with verse 16. He makes this point right from the gecko, verse 16. Check this out. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's right there. (laughs) For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. They're mutually exclusive. That's what he's saying. So that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, he says, which are, and he gives us 15 of these works of the flesh. And he says, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and these And things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here we go. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. I would, amen, yes, I would encourage you and us we, we got nine weeks going through this. Memorize Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Would you be up for that challenge? Anyone here? Two verses. I encourage you to memorize these verses, and it makes for a perfect prayer template for you to pray through the fruit of the Spirit in your life and ask God to grow these things in your heart, in your life. Now, we need to know this right from the beginning. And this is our um, first point, our first main point, because I want us to, to, to go home with, you know, to, you know, I want to put some handles on the message, something that we can go home with. And the first point is this. This is not your fruit, but the Spirit's fruit. And we got to We got to learn that. We got to remember that. We got to learn that right from the beginning. This is not your fruit, but the Spirit's fruit. So this is not a list of how you can better yourself. It's not. Let not your focus be, I need to better myself and be more loving. I need to, I need to try to be more joyous. I, I need to try to be more patient. See, we have this list, and it's called the fruit of the Spirit with a capital S, by the way. Did you notice that? Because these are characteristics of the Holy Spirit. They're not, they're not ours. And he is the only one that can grow and bear this fruit in us, or this fruit, I may say, in us. And here's the key that most people forget. As we connect with God, as we spend time with Jesus, as we focus on having fellowship and communion with him, just as Jesus teaches us in John 15, and what does he say? When you abide in the vine, when you are connected in Christ, fruit just happens. Fruit just happens. Fruit just grows in your life. So our focus is not, let's just be more loving. Our focus is, let's abide in Christ. And God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is the one who replaces the old self with the new self. More joy, more love, more peace, 
more self-control, and so on and so forth. So the Holy Spirit is the one that brings about, that grows this fruit in our life. And yet, and yet, there are things that we can do. I, I, I think I, I want to say this like 20 times <laughs> because I need to get this and you need to get this. And yet, so this is something that the Holy Spirit does. And yet, there are things that you and I can do to open ourselves up to the growth that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life. Does that make sense? We have a responsibility. And that's really where we're going to be spending our next nine weeks explaining and exploring and journeying through. What are the specific ways that we can become people of love? How can we better surrender ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit so that we, so that we become, you know, people of love, people of peace, people of, you know, of joy and so on and so forth. And the first fruit is love. That's the first one that we're going to camp on today. And it's a big one. It is a big one. Uh, but just bear with me. Now, word order in the Greek language doesn't matter in ancient Greek. It just doesn't matter, or at least from what we can tell. So we can't take things too seriously when it comes to the order that they are in. And yet, <laughs> every scholar, all scholars pretty much agree that love is listed first for a reason. And I think we can tell that reason. I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll go into that. And it's hard to overstate just how big of a deal this word love is in the New Testament. So our next point that we want to make is this. Love is a big deal in the Bible. So the first one was, it's not our fruit, but the Holy Spirit's fruit, right? And then now we're making the point, love is a big deal in the Bible. It is. Just to give you a few examples. And the first one is Matthew 22, 37 to 40. I'm not going to read all these passages. You can read them at home, uh, but I'm going to kind of summarize them. And if you want to capture in a sentence what it said, what it said here in Matthew 22, it pretty much says that the law of Christ is love. Well, that's pretty big. I mean, this is when Jesus was asked, what's the most important law, Jesus? And Jesus points to two laws, and they both have to do with love. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got, right? Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's, 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 that's a big one. In another instance, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says in John 13, 35, that love is the test of discipleship. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you're, if you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll be someone who embodies love. You'll be someone who will love other people and will grow in love for other people. Or you can say it like this. It's impossible to be an unloving Christian. That's an oxymoron. It is. If you are a Christ follower, you will inevitably be a loving person that keeps on growing in love. Let me give you another passage where scripture talks about the importance of love. Apostle John, in 1 John 4, 8, he makes the point that we cannot know God without love. He makes that big of a statement that you cannot know God if you don't love your brother and sister. He's saying that if you don't have love in you, you actually do not know God. And he makes this statement that, you know, God is actually love. It's one of his attributes. God is the source of love. He is the one who defines love. And so if you don't have the Christ kind of love in you, then John makes the case that you actually don't know God. You don't know Jesus. Even if you do a lot of religious activities, you just, you do not know Jesus at all. 
Also, because we have to mention this text as well, this is the last one for this part, I have to mention this passage too when we talk about love, 1 Corinthians 13. Everyone kind of knows that passage. And this, is, this will be the love chapter, right? If you've heard it, you probably heard it at a wedding. And even in the first three verses of this chapter, Apostle Paul makes the point that ministry without love is meaningless. It's meaningless. Service without love is meaningless. It doesn't matter how many sermons I preach if I don't love my wife. It just doesn't. It it, it doesn't matter how many people you help lead to Jesus if you're not a person of love. It just doesn't matter. You're doing it for nothing. And by the way, all of these examples that I shared with you are just a small sampling of what the New Testament has to say about love and how important it is. I think we're, we're getting that. Okay, we can see that love is important in the New Testament and the Old Testament, actually. And of course, there are different words for love in the Greek language, in the original language that the New Testament was written. And we know that these point to different kinds of love. And so the word that is consistently used for the kind of love that Christians are called out to, to live is the word agape. The word agape, if there's one Greek word that you should know, probably be this one, <laughs> agape. And here's a definition for what agape means, ready to be convicted and to be more and more convicted by the end as, as we progress in this, in, this, in this message. But here's the definition. <laughs> I heard that, Chris. <laughs> and this will be our third point that we want to make today. Agape love is doing good without expecting Repayment. Ooh, how's that sitting? <laughs> Just to recap a bit, the first point was this is not your fruit, but the, but the uh, Spirit's fruit, and then love is a big deal in the Bible, and now agape love is doing good without expecting repayment. Notice I said doing good, because agape is not necessarily a feeling that you have towards someone, which separates agape love from the other kinds of love. Because if you're a friend with someone, it's because you feel good about your friendship. And that would be philea love. That's, we don't have time to go into that, but that's one, that's brotherly love, philea love. And if you're in love with someone, right, if you desire them, it's just normal that you're attracted to them. And that would be the eros love, the romantic kind of love. But agape is the kind of love that you can do. And you are called to do it even to your worst enemy. Someone that you have a very difficult time being in the same room with. Did you know that you can still agape someone that goes out of their way to make your life miserable? You can do good to them without expecting to get anything in return. You can pray for them. You can be generous to them. You can give to them. You can bless them. Agape love is this caring for the person without caring for what they do in return to you. It is selfless. It is sacrificial. And it is unseen and unparalleled in this world. And actually, even unheard in many churches today and many Christians' lives. It's a supernatural kind of love. And I'm going to make the case today that agape love only exists from God and from God's people who have experienced it in the gospel. I don't think you can 
You can see agape love today, at least in the truest form, unless it comes from God in the form of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And again, this agape love is doing good without expecting repayment. And again, it's not necessarily a feeling. It's not. And even the word agape, which is the noun, it shows up 116 times in the Bible. That's a lot of times. But agapao, which is the verb form, shows up even more, 143 times, which speaks to how are you loving and not do you have it. There's a difference there. So it's not necessarily do you have this kind of sacrificial love. No, no, no. But are you showing it? Are you giving it? Are you doing it? This kind of sacrificial love is a verb. Our main teaching text for today, the passage from Luke 6 that I just read right at the beginning of the sermon, gives a one-sentence summary of this kind of love, and we're kind of going to focus on this for the remainder of our time, mainly on this uh, passage from Luke 6. So let's just read verse 31 for now. Again, it gives us a a one-sentence definition of this agape love. And Jesus says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. I'm sure you've heard this before. At least Matthew's version is a little more memorable because we just went through the Sermon on the Mount, right? And, and Matthew says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But this is, and I know, I'm sure you know this, this is the popular what? Golden rule, right? Even, even the secular world uses this, the golden rule. Uh, but let me just ask, wouldn't you like it if everyone lived like that? Whew, our world would look so different you'd be heaven. (laughs) If everyone just treated other people as they wanted to be treated. And by the way, this is not necessarily only a Christian idea. Did you know that? It's found in much of ancient Buddhist wisdom as well. It's found outside of the Christian tradition. But mostly, other pre-Christian formulations of this are more like the silver rule and not the golden rule. So interesting. They say something like this, do not do to others what you would not want done to you. Did you catch that? So the focus is in the negative or the passive, but Jesus takes a silver rule, if you may, and goes one step further, and it's not this passive, you know, don't treat people poorly, but actively do good, but actively go out of your way sacrificially to do good onto people. It's so Jesus to do something like that, right? He elevates everything so much higher. This sounds like a clear command, doesn't it? It's, like, is it clear? It's, it's very clear, isn't it? But it is a very, very difficult one to live by. It's an extremely tall order. I'll even say this. It is impossible to live it out unless the Holy Spirit lives it through you. It is an impossibility. Stop trying. (laughs) It is impossible for you to do so or for me to do so. And so what we do is we try to find loopholes so that we avoid living this out because it's way too much. It's it's way too extreme because let's face it, who wants to love their annoying neighbor anyways? So we'll try to find loopholes around it. And so one of the classic loopholes that we try to find around this agape love is seen in Luke Chapter 10, verse 29. And this is when a religious leader is challenging Jesus about the most important laws. And Jesus asks, so, well, what do you think they are? And the guy answers correctly. 
loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good for you, buddy. You, you passed the quiz. And the religious leader then asks, but who is my neighbor, Jesus? Ah, l- l- let me ask, have you found this loophole as well? Have you asked that question before? Maybe not in the exact same words. We say, of course, we're supposed to love everyone. Of course, we're supposed to love everyone. Of course, we're supposed to do good without expecting repayment or without expecting anything in return. But who fits that category anyways? Who am I actually required to love? And what we see here is very revealing. This is the Jewish teaching. Rabbis would teach this. And by the way, this is actually a quote from Leviticus 19. Jesus didn't just make the command on the spot. No, but he was quoting Leviticus 19. Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So good religious Jews would would know Leviticus 19 off by heart. They would know they're supposed to love just like that. But this is what they would teach. They would actually teach that you should, you should only love your neighbor and not everyone is your neighbor. Huh. That person sitting next to me, he's a Samaritan. Nah, he's unclean. He's not my neighbor. Person to my left, oh no, they rarely come to the temple. They're not really my neighbor. They're much lower than me, so I'm not supposed to love them. And here we go, <laughs> a loophole. But in, in our day and age, we may say stuff like, well, that guy is not really my neighbor because they don't wear a mask or because their kids are vaccinated, stuff like that, right? And on we go, fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. Christians do this today. Did you know that? We do this today. We find loopholes in ways to misinterpret this universal principle of love, which is crystal clear in the old covenant, and it's crystal clear in the new covenant. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the other question that we tend to ask, the other loophole, so that we can get around this crystal clear command, it's not necessarily a a Bible verse or a quote, but a marketing tactic that we've all seen. I guarantee you we've all seen it. It's the question that every good advertising agency knows. It's the question, what's in it for me? Oh, come on. I got to get something out of this. Have you heard that before? I mean, every commercial on TV, every, you know, you hear it on the radio, you hear it when you listen to your, you know, your most favorite podcast, you see it on social media, every marketing firm, they live and die by this one question. You can't get someone to take an action, to buy a product, to subscribe to a service, unless you're, you answer this question, what's in it for them? What are you providing them? <laughs> right? What do they get in return? How does it benefit them? And it's the same idea that crept in the way that we're supposed to love. Sure, I'll help you move. Sure, I'll buy you lunch, but what's in it for me? And you know what that is? That's actually a twisted way not to love that person, but to love yourself. That's not agape love. That's actually capitalism. It's this mutual exchange of goods for the good of the enterprise, for the good of myself, right? And so the opposite of love, and I want to make this case today that it's actually not hatred. The opposite of love, it's not, it's not hatred. And by the way, hatred is certainly something that God does not want from us either, amen? 
But we tend to think in terms of, you know, if love is a good idea and hatred is a bad idea towards people, and as, then as long as I don't hate them, as long as I don't have a, a, you know, a wrong emotion towards them, that you're in the clear. You're actually doing just fine. That's precisely the traditional Jewish perspective that Jesus was speaking against. against. I want to make the case that the opposite of love is selfishness. And this is our fourth point for today. Again, let's just recap the points. Uh, First point, this is not your fruit, but the Spirit's fruit. And then love is a big deal in the Bible. Then agape love is doing good without expecting repayment. And now the opposite of this agape love is selfishness. If love is really defined by how you give and serve and love others before putting your own needs first, before you take care of yourself, The opposite of that is when you put your own needs first, and that is called all day long selfishness. When the person that you love the most is actually you. And what we've done is we've actually taken love your neighbor as yourself, and we've crossed the line through the neighbor part, and now it became just love yourself. So while I believe that we cannot grow this love on our own, and we said it a few times, and I want to say it a few more times, that we cannot muster this kind of love, that we cannot find it within ourselves. We need God. We desperately need God to grow, grow it in us through the person of the Holy Spirit, and hence the, 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 the series. But here is something that we can do to help us. Ready? We can repent of selfishness. We can do that. And we're actually responsible to repent of selfishness. We can turn to God and say, and even today, if you're convicted today, pray today. Father, I'm so sorry for being only about myself. I've made my life about me, my my, my wants, my desires, but I want to repent. Please forgive me for being so selfish in so many arenas of life. And Father, I ask that you would please bear in me through through the Holy Spirit more of your love. Amen? Do you know what's interesting and not surprising at all? If you remember, we just read from Galatians 5 earlier. We read about the works of the flesh, kind of the the anti-fruit of the Spirit. And there's 15 of them, 15 works of the flesh. You know, we want to hear something absolutely, for me, it was mind-blowing. Every single one of those, it comes from putting yourself first. How crazy is that? Every one of those works of the flesh, it comes from putting me first because when we turn inwards to ourselves, that's when we turn against each other as people as well. That's why we have fights and quarrels and and arguments because we love ourselves. It's when you put yourself first that the number of enemies increases in your life. How revealing is that? And how amazing and loving of God that when he grows us in love, it actually brings us together as a family, as a church, as a community. God, do that work in us. Grow us in love. So let me ask, how have you made your life all about yourself? Are you someone who expects to be served, but you don't expect to serve other people? Is that you? Are you a person that even in a simple conversation, you always have to make yourself look good? Do you got to have the last word in every conversation? Is that you? Are you someone who expects other people to be generous to you, but you have a tight fist, you know, clenched around your possessions and your money? 
And, and by the way, you don't necessarily need to be rich to be a selfish person. You can be as poor as poor can be and still be the most selfish person on planet Earth. Jesus actually addresses this in the next few verses of our main teaching text from Luke 6. So let's go to verses 32 to 34. I'm going to read them again. Lord, work at our hearts. <laughs> work in us, Lord. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Right? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now I want to pick up on this language that Jesus is using here. And using financial language. Did you catch that? He's using the word lend. And, and so I wanted to actually have a sermon prep, but I completely forgot. I was going to bring 10 US dollar bills just to have them here with me. But just, just imagine that I have 10 US dollar bills in my hand. First of all, Jesus is not saying that it's wrong if someone is paying you back. That's not what he's saying. It's not wrong if you're giving someone a loan and then they pay you back. It's not. That's not wrong. It's just that you wouldn't call that an act of agape love. You will call that lending someone money. But his point is this. He's saying, this is how you guys tend to treat people, and this is how you tend to use your love. I'm going to give this person a ride home. So I have $10. I'll put one or two down. That's worth $2, right? Gas and, you know, my time. Well, you catch me out later, right? That's what you're thinking in your mind. You're going to get me back, right? I'm going to buy this person lunch. That's another $3, right? And I'm sure knowing them, this is what you're thinking, they are going to return that favor and buy me lunch next time or just give me some money. And you, you can only go so far before people actually do return the favor, right? You know the invisible tally that we all have, right? <laughs> Am I the only one? <laughs> you're looking at me as like, you're the only one that has this, you know, this invisible tally. You got everything figured out in your mind and you're keeping that tally. Hey, buddy, I helped you. Sometimes we even call people. Hey, buddy, remember I helped you move 10 years ago? <laughs> we would go that far to, you know, <laughs> you got to help me move now. Come on, right? Sweet. Now you're back to $9 because you picked some of those dollars that you, right? So you're back to, you're like, oh, yes, I have all my money back or almost all my money back. And what we do is we have these only ifs. Only ifs. I'm going to do this only if they're going to pay me back. That's how we live our life. I'm going to serve this person only if I get something in return. Only if there's something for me in it. I'm going to love my spouse only if she loves me back. I'm going to serve at church only if I'm noticed. Because what we're worried about is just giving and giving and giving and never receiving anything in return. And now we're depleted and I'm down to my last dollar. I can't have that in my life. And that's why we even look for those loopholes that we just talked about a few minutes earlier and ask the question of, well, who's my neighbor? He's not really my neighbor. I'm down to my last dollar. No, no, no. He's not my neighbor. Because I only want to love people that I'm fairly confident that will love me back. Or we even ask the other question, well, what's in it for me, right? And that, by definition, is conditional love. That's not agape love. See, every single one of these only ifs, even if you're just looking for gratitude or recognition, because the sin is deep in the heart, 
or, or you're looking for a shout out on social media from that person that you're, you know, that you did that act of goodwill towards. That's a condition, church. Only if I get a good return on my investment. Again, that may be capitalism, but that's not agape love by any means. Here's my next point for today. True love is given, not sold. True love is given, not sold. That's exactly the point that Jesus is making in Luke 6. It's when you give someone a loan and you weren't even certain that they were going to pay you back. It's, it's giving without an expectation. Otherwise, he says, you're no different than any other sinner out there in the world. And like I said earlier, this love is supernatural. It's not normal in our world. It's abnormal. Even if you're not looking for a monetary return on your investment, you still want that recognition or for the person to at least say, thank you, man. And sometimes, because I have to add this as well in there, sometimes what we're expecting in return is to feel good about helping that person. You want to feel good, right? This falls in the same category of conditional love. That made me think. You know, you, you'll hear interviews with famous people or actors or rich people that give a, you know, a, a large amount of money to different charities, and when they are asked, why did you do it? They'll say, because it felt good. It felt good. It makes me feel good. By the way, that is still an act of self-love. Do you see it? If you're, if you're doing it to feel good about yourself, then you're still doing it as a roundabout way of love turning in on itself, and it's an act of self-service, not a love that is given, but rather sold. Church, I want us to hear this. I want us to hear this. If we are to embody this kind of love, if we are to pursue Christ's love, Christ's kind of love, we will love and we will lose. Do you hear that? We will love and we will lose. Your love will go wasted, squandered, just like the love of the prodigal son's father, right? He gives all these resources to him who leaves home and they're spent in a moment. And if you're going to love with this kind of love, it's vulnerable. You're going to be vulnerable. And so we are left with the question, why? Why would I love like this? Why is it better to love than to lose? Losing, obviously, quotation marks. And one of the reasons is that agape love is, 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 is how humans were originally created. Did you know that? Before the fall. Listen, church, this is part of our design, the way God wants us to live. Every human being on planet Earth, the intention from our creator, from our God, is that we would love this kind of way. This whole dog-eat-dog world, you know, the whole king of the hill, make it to the top, that whole concept that we live by today, that's the result of sin. That's not the correct way that God has designed for us to live. And by the way, if we live this way, it might be safer. You won't be vulnerable. You won't have your heart broken, right? You may not lose as much, at least not here and now, but you will in the end. But we still have to ask this question. If that's how we're supposed to live life, I'm going to help, I'm going to serve, I'm going to be generous. And you realize that you're down to your last dollar and someone asks you, hey, can I have $2? You're like, ah, no. Am I going to go bankrupt? That's the question that we want to ask. How do we manage the tension then? Well, it's a very good question. The reality is that it's very hard to love when you're depleted. 
when you feel that you're running on empty. And I think that so many people in our churches today live just like, just like that. And Jesus actually addresses this, this in the next two verses, the last two verses that we're going to look at in our passage, verses 35 and 36. Let me read them again for us. Beloved your enemies, he says, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So there are three compelling reasons why we should live our lives like this, and, and you don't have to worry that you're going to become or go bankrupt. You don't have to worry about that. So let me just make those three, uh, let me just share those three reasons. And the first one, and it's not the most important one, it's not, it's the least important one, but the first one that I want to mention is that Jesus promises us, and not only here in Luke 6, he actually does it consistently in his teachings, and this is it, you will be rewarded. That's a reason. You will be rewarded. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, because I think it should still be fresh in our mind. In Matthew 6, 4, and it says, and your father who sees in secret will what? Will reward you. Now, even if your friend doesn't mention you on their social media, even if they don't say thank you, right? The reality is that when we trust that God is the one that sees in secret, he is the one that truly rewards. Now, we have to say this as well. We have to be careful about not just doing stuff to get a reward, right? I'm, I'm all about those heavenly jewels, you know, because that's starting to turn a little bit inward towards selfishness, which ruins everything. And that's why it's not a primary motivation, but there's an assurance that comes with it, doesn't it? It allows you to stop looking for that person to repay you, right? You, you, now, you're not looking for that person to repay you or to hit you back because you trust that God will now. And that's totally different. And if God will make everything right in the new heavens and the new earth, then it's totally fine if you bought someone even a venti-sized Starbucks and it costs you like 10 bucks, that's fine because your heavenly father sees even what's done in secret and he knows how to reward and he won't necessarily do it here and now the way you want it, but he will do it with a better reward, which is the eternal reward we'll get in heaven. Amen? The second reason is this, and this is what verse 35 says. If we continue reading, and I just read it, but I want to read it again. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. It says that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We, we, we so easily skip over parts like that, right? And by the way, parenting is a fraction of what we read here about God's love towards his people. It is. You just wipe butts and you change diapers and you feed for years and years and years, and your kids might be thankful and grateful. Might be thankful and grateful. Thank you, Jesus, for our kids. Right? That's, I, I, don't, I mean, no, I mean, I have no hatred towards kids. I love kids. But in the same way, God pours his love on us. And how grateful are we? Right? How many times do you say thank you on a regular basis for, what, for all that he's done? God shows love to the ungrateful and to the evil. And here's the point. Right? Reason number two, here's the point. If we are God's children, because it says here in verse 35 that you are sons of the most high God, then like father, like son, that's why. Then like father, like son. The point is that we want to imitate God. We want to live this sacrificial kind of love, this sacrificial kind of, 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 of life because we are God's now, right? 
And we're, and we're going to be kind. We're going to do good even to those that are ungrateful, even to those that do not say thank you. Amen? And the third reason, which is the most important reason, the third reason is the most important reason is this, is because we ourselves have received mercy. Right? Verse 36, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. That's so packed right there. If you have received mercy, if you have received the gospel, that's what he's saying. If you have received forgiveness of sins, if you have been made right with God, and we have, then that should empower you and me to love in the same way. But also, if we listen to the teachings of Jesus, it is also an expectation to show this kind of love. I mean, Jesus has some harsh words for people that, who are counting on God's forgiveness for them, but they don't want to show it to this, you know, they don't want to show the same kind of forgiveness for, for others in their life. He's got some harsh words for those people. So what do we do when we're running dry? What do we do when you feel like you're depleted? Well, instead of looking for repayment from the person that you're trying to love, right, you go to your heavenly father, right, who is rich in mercy. That's what the word says, right? You go to your father who has a great love for you, and you experience that love more and more and more, deeper and deeper and deeper, over and over again, because it's the only love that will nourish you, fill you, and satisfy you. Amen? C.S. Lewis says it like this. In God, there's no hunger. In God, there's no hunger that needs to be filled. Only plenteousness that desires to give. How beautiful is that? And how true? Because true love is given, not sold. And this is why the only true place that we see this love on full display with no ulterior motives, no pretense, no agendas is in God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. God in his self-sufficiency is able to love us with his generous love, with his plenteousness of love, how C.S. Lewis says it, and he lavishes his grace on us. And we see the pinnacle of this love, church, on full display at the cross. This is where Jesus died in our place to bring us from death to life. And if we want to love well, we must be loved well. And you need to get the gospel. And we must experience and receive that kind of love ourselves from Jesus Christ, from the gospel. Apostle John summarizes so eloquently in 1 John 4, 16. I think it's 4, 19. I may have the, the what does it say there? 19? 19, yes. We love because he first loved us. How awesome is that? We love as a response to God's love because he first loved us. As a matter of fact, it is a failed attempt, church. We are wasting our time if, we're, if, if we are to try to love with this kind of love, the agape love, and we ourselves have never experienced it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll say it again. The greatest way that God loved us was through the gospel. And we're always going to celebrate that, even in heaven, for an eternity. Let me end with this. But even if at one point in time you say that, hey, I've experienced God's love, you know, and, and, and you should know that this is an ongoing experience. It is. We need to be connected on a daily basis, on a consistent basis, just as the branch is connected to the vine. 
This is not like, hey, oh, I, you know, I was loved by God 15 years ago at camp. You know, remember that one prayer that I, that I gave and, and a decision of faith and prayed and asked God to forgive my sins? It, that was enough. That was, that, was, that was great. No, no, no. It doesn't work like that. This love is a life-sustaining source that you and I need on a regular basis. I need it every time I breathe, every time I step, every time I make a decision, I need this sustaining source, God's love. So here are two practices for us to, 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 to kind of end with really quickly. Two practices because I want us to go home and actually do something, pursue something, right? Just, I want to be practical. This is something that we need to pursue so that we open ourselves up so that the Holy Spirit can grow us in love. And the first one is this, encounter God's loving presence on a consistent basis. Encounter God's loving presence on a consistent basis. Church, we encounter God's loving presence when we, what? When we come to church. That's why we should come to church on a consistent basis. When we read our Bibles, when we pray, the Lord's Supper, when we fast, church, these are not religious activities. These are opportunities to encounter God's loving presence. But it's up to you how you're going to experience that. Is it a religious activity or encountering God's loving presence? It is up to you and up to me. But let me just say this as well. We will never encounter the loving presence of God if we're just rushing through life. I feel like that's life for me and, you know, just, just rushing through life. I would actually make the case that it's impossible to love when you're busy. It's impossible to be loved when you're busy. Just think about it. How easy it is to, to love your spouse when you're never around. Probably the easiest thing, right? It's, it's very easy because you're not, there's not much effort and sweat that goes into it. You're never around, right? And maybe you're just not around. You're around, but you're never present emotionally and mentally. And to be honest with you, I think that's how our spiritual disciplines kind of go in our life. You're probably just checking the box, but you're not slowing down enough to encounter God's loving presence. And so I would challenge us to slow down, slow down, slow down, Ovi, to connect with God, to experience his loving presence in what he so graciously wants to live and wants to do in our lives. And out of that overflow of love, to live a life of love. That's the only way we're going to love. And the second practice is this. Do small things with great love. Do small things with great love. This is what we, we do, church. We undervalue small acts of love and kindness. And when we think to ourselves, you know, we're like, hey, nah, nah, it's probably going to, it probably wouldn't make a big difference to buy lunch or to just send a text. Nah, never mind. I'm not going to do it. Too small of a thing. But the reality is that small things to you might be massive to the person that you're doing it right? It might have massive implications. You just don't know where they're at in life, and you just don't know how God is going to use that text or that encouragement. Also, unless you're faithful in these small acts of love, you will never get the bigger ones that you keep dreaming about. Never. God's not going to use you and me in the big things unless you are faithful in the small. So send the text, give the encouragement, whatever God lays on your heart, buy lunch, buy whatever you need to love. So the two practices to go home with, encounter God's loving presence on a consistent basis and do small things with great love. You ready to practice these things this week? Are you convicted? <laughs> yeah. Let's stand. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.